from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. My name is Tony Sundermeyer, the senior pastor, and I want to thank you for watching today's broadcast. Now, I invite you to join in the worship of God. choir just sang the church with psalms must shout and so I want to welcome the children. Um, there will be no shouting today but I want you to know that we are so glad you're here. We want you to know that this service is for you and I hope you enjoy the music and the words and the prayers and that you feel really close to God and I want you to know that you're an important part of this worship and praise. So we're here today to enter the mystery of Easter and to learn more about the one who is Easter and to learn more about who we really are. So thank you for being here today. One of the ways that we learn more is that we turn to scripture. Our first reading is from the prophet Isaiah. Hear now the word of God for you who are the people of God. Thus says the Lord God, for I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people no more shall the sounds of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. And before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear, and the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Our second reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. This is a passage in which we meet Jesus after two days. Friday, we remembered his death and his burial. 
And our scriptures tell us that on Saturday, on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. And this is where we meet Jesus today, the day after the Sabbath. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again? Then they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home amazed at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Before I pray, I'd like to just take a moment of personal privilege. For those who have been around the last five years, you've heard me talk about my own call to ministry, my own call to faith. I grew up Roman Catholic in a very devout Catholic family, became a Presbyterian at 19 years old at the Wayne Presbyterian Church just outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. My mentor, the person who guided me and directed me to Princeton Seminary and said to me one day, I think God's calling you to be a pastor and you need to go to Princeton Seminary. And I said, okay. Uh, His name is Dr. John Galloway. He served that church faithfully for about a decade and a half. He has a daughter that lives here in Atlanta and he's here in worship today. And I just wanna welcome John and thank him. John, just raise your hand. Thank, Thank you, John. You can blame him, I think he said. Um, In all sincerity, uh, I learned a lot about what it means to be a pastor from John, and it is an absolute delight to share Easter with you, John, today. Let us pray. Lord, we give you thanks for every good gift that you pour out into our lives. We're especially thankful for the gifts of people that surround us the hands we hold, the voices we sing next to, the ones occupying the pews with us. And for those who aren't here, we're also mindful of those who've gone on to their eternal rest, we're ever mindful. We'd ask, oh Lord, that your good news would speak to our hearts even now. We'd ask, oh Lord, that the good news of Easter Sunday would transform us and change us. We'd ask that we wouldn't leave our minds or our hearts or our hands at the door, but that this proclamation of your good news would change us and change the world. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, this past Tuesday, we marked one of the very special days in the life of our uh, community. 
After a seven-month process, our confirmation students, in front of their family and their friends, they presented their statements of faith to the session. Now, writing a statement of faith to put into words what you believe about God, what you believe about Jesus, what you believe it means to be a part of the church. If anybody's ever done this, and there's students here that I know have done it recently, you know it's no easy task. And yet every year, every year, I'm blown away by the, the honesty. I'm blown away by the elegance. I'm blown away by the thoughtfulness the theology. I'm absolutely blown away by the commitment that is articulated by these teenagers, the words they craft and, and string together, the way in which they share their statements of faith. I know this sounds corny and a bit cliche, but it really does move me. Their words move me. And in hearing all of these statements of faith, I recognize, I come face to face with this profound truth that words matter and that words have power. Words have power to bring life. They have power to bring death. We know that full well in the proverb that comes from the 18th chapter, the 31st verse that says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Words can bring life. Words can bring death. Jonathan Merritt, in his recent book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, digs deeper, I think, into this truth from the book of Proverbs when he writes this. Words are one of God's holy gifts to humanity, and speaking them should be a sacred act. We drape our dreams in words. We paint murals of sorrows with them. They are humanity's carrier pigeons of information, of meaning, of emotion. We struggle to live without them. He goes on to say, but we humans don't always wield our words well. We often speak without much thought. We spew hate speech and blaspheme, transforming the sacred act of speaking into profane behavior. We speak deceptively and unkindly. We use words to curse. We use words to tear down, to discourage, to blame, and to judge. He concludes by saying this, a simple no can fly from our lips with the decimating power of a shotgun shell, while a sincere yes, he says, can alter the course of a life. In her statement of faith this past week, Amy one of our confirmands said this. She said, the most important thing the church can do, the most important thing the church can do is give people hope. What a powerful insight and what a powerful word this is, hope. The language of hope permeates the biblical narrative. It's all over the place. It's, it's evidence in chapter after chapter and book after book. It's, it's evidence in the text that Jamie read for us this morning from Isaiah chapter 65. It's written during a time of, of exile when the people of God had been forcibly displaced and violently displaced from their homes. And Isaiah writes a vision of God's future. It's a vision that gives the people hope. It's a, it's a future that, that, that paints a picture of a time when God will restore and when God will prosper the people. And Isaiah's words create hope for the community. 
But as it is in every case, when hope is being talked about in the biblical narrative, across the books, across the narratives, every time someone's talking about hope, it is always tied to the character and nature of God. It's always tied to who God is because God is a hope-filled God. God is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. God is faithful. God is reliable. God is trustworthy. And God will do what God promises. I, I think Amy is spot on here. I think she has it absolutely right. The most important thing the church can offer people is hope. As friends of God, I think we're called to speak the language of hope. And that language has a particular accent. It has a particular rhythm. There's a particular way that, that Christians express that hope in the world. And we do it by speaking Easter, by speaking the language of resurrection. But I am absolutely convinced, and stay with me here on this point, I am absolutely convinced that we cannot learn this language, that we cannot speak this language of hope unless we learn the language of crucifixion, unless we learn the language of Good Friday, unless we learn the language of hopelessness. G.K. Chesterton, the great British journalist and author, once wrote this, hope means hoping when things are hopeless or it's no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude or optimism. It is only when everything is hopeless, he says, that hope can be a strength. Friends, I believe that the symbol of hopelessness in the Christian story is not the cross. I believe the symbol of hopelessness in the Christian story is the stone-sealed tomb of Jesus. I believe the darkest day in the Christian narrative is not necessarily Good Friday, but Holy Saturday, when life continued on without Jesus. When another page in the calendar turned without Jesus, when another sun came up and another sun set without hope. That's the darkest day, I believe, in the Christian story. In that borrowed plot, the love of God was dead and buried. In that borrowed plot, the justice of God was dead and buried. In that borrowed plot, the life of God was dead and buried. In that borrowed plot, the hope of humanity, the hope of authentic community, the hope of a, of a God-willed, purpose-filled life was dead and buried in that stone-sealed tomb. It's that stone-sealed tomb the women thought they were visiting that Sunday morning, the one that they thought they would find, held only a memory and held a dream deferred. It did not hold a future. It held only a past, a time that had come to a painful end with Jesus of Nazareth, their rabbi, their teacher, their Lord, their Savior, their friend being executed on a Roman cross. And church, I wonder this morning, is it possible for you, is it possible for me to have empathy for those women? To have empathy for them in that, in that moment, to actually feel right now in real time what they were experiencing, to feel what they felt as they ventured toward the tomb, to feel and to live and draw breath from the stifling and stingy air 
of hopelessness. It seems as if much of the world had a collective, empathetic moment this very week as the iconic and historic Notre Dame Cathedral went up in flames. During Holy Week, no less, we were reminded that nothing is permanent and that the things that we hold to be most sacred, most meaningful, can be compromised or destroyed in a matter of moments. The image of a cathedral or a place of worship set ablaze, turned into ash and dust. That image, I think, is a potent one. When I saw it, I immediately thought of the words from the Gospel of John, the second chapter, when Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, he was referencing himself in this saying that he is the temple that will be destroyed. And as I watched Notre Dame burn, I... I thought also about the churches in St. Landry's Parish in Louisiana, ravaged by fire in recent days, the hands of a racist arsonist. I, I thought about the great cathedrals of Europe and Japan that were obliterated by firebombs and the most heinous weapons of war. I thought about our friends down the street at the temple and that fateful fall day, October 1958, when white supremacists put 50 sticks of dynamite underneath that synagogue in retaliation to the outspoken advocacy of Rabbi Rothschild on civil rights. I thought about the churches in Syria that have been shelled in a conflict that has decimated an entire nation and has displaced much of the Syrian Christian community. And of course, this morning, I woke up thinking about these Christians who are gathering for worship in Sri Lanka, doing the same thing that we are doing this day, to bear witness that Jesus Christ is risen. They all cut down. Their cathedrals burned up and broken. Their bodies dead because of suicide bombers, as we have watched these cathedrals and as we've watched these houses of worship burn and crumble, can we not tap into hopelessness? If you're not feeling it, check your pulse. I think there's an analogy here as well to life. For we are like Notre Dame, we are like those churches in Louisiana, in Syria, in Sri Lanka, in Japan, and in Europe. We are strong, we are beautifully designed, we house the very spirit and image of God, and yet we are vulnerable to all sorts of fires. A widow on the one-year anniversary of her husband's death a father lamenting his, his son's addiction and atheism, a professional who's lost their passion for their work and, and is unsure of what's next, someone who has gained the whole world but has lost their soul. 
A woman whose body is shutting down, devastated by disease, and yet her mind is so very sharp, her faith very much intact. A marriage that has gone up in flames, a relationship that has ended, a couple that struggles with infertility, a college student who is shadowed by depression, a child with a learning difference who feels defeated as they try to keep up in school, a friend who does another stint in jail, a loved one who drinks themselves to sleep one more night. All of these situations can feel like cathedrals on fire, and this is all happening just in our community, let alone the world. They can feel like cathedrals on fire. They can feel like stone-sealed tombs. In other words, life at times can feel and seem and even be hopeless. Friends, this experience, this feeling, this reality is is that which the women enter into on that Sunday morning. They not only carry oils to anoint a lifeless body, but they carry in their heavy hearts hopelessness too deep for words. So if we're going to learn to speak the language of Easter, if we're going to learn the lyrics of resurrection, if we're going to learn the songs and choruses of hope, then we have to be willing to name, even move toward stone-sealed tombs and cathedrals on fire. We have to have proximity, for it's only in the soil of hopelessness that true hope grows. It's only from death that resurrection is even possible. It's only out of the grave that the angels can say, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here but is risen. This, friends, is the message of hope that we're called to bear as the church, that God raised Jesus from the dead, that God raised hope out of hopelessness so that all of humanity may share his victory in this age and in the age to come. It's not just about victory here and now, but it's also victory over death. And I know so many here within the sound of my voice occupying these pews are missing the people who would normally occupy them. Over the years, they've gone on to be with the Lord, but let me claim for us once again the great believer's treasure. It's written in the words of the Gospel of John. See, in the revelation of John, see the home of God is among mortals. God will dwell with them. They will be God's peoples and God will be with them. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. Church, Amy is so right. She's so right. The most important thing the church can offer people is hope. The witness of the women on that first Easter morning, let us say something historical now. It was the very first act of the post-resurrection church. The very first undertaking was an all-female congregation. Can I get an amen? The very first act was done by an all-female congregation of Mary Magdalene, of Joanna, of Mary, the mother of James, and the other women. And the very first act of this all-female congregation, of this post-resurrection church, the very first act is to speak hope. Luke tells us that the women went back and shared what they had experienced just moments earlier to the apostles who were incredulous, repeating the words of the angels, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. This all-female congregation, this 
this first post-resurrection church models for us how to speak Easter. Models for us how to speak the language of hope. It is the single most important task in the life of the church. The proclamation of hope. That life can come from death, that stone-sealed tombs can open, that cathedrals can be built, and that our lives can rise from the ash heap. Because that's who God is, and that's what God does. And in real time, in our moment, in our age, God has chosen in God's divine wisdom to do this through the church, to you, through you and through me, which is we proclaim Christ's resurrected body on earth. So let me close with this. There are a lot of good reasons to be part of the church. There are a lot of decent reasons to be part of the church. There are a lot of mediocre reasons to be part of the church. People are part of the church because they want a place for their kids to be baptized and confirmed. They're, they're part of the church because they need a place to get married and eventually they're going to need a place to get buried. People are part of the church because that's where their friends are. People are part of the church because they need a place to go on Christmas Eve and Easter. And I'm not calling anybody out. People are part of the church because they have nowhere else to go. People are part of the church to hear a relevant message that's going to motivate me during the week. People are part of the church because of programs or because of beautiful music or because of the, the beauty of sacred space. There are a lot of reasons, friends, to be part of the church. But the most important reason, the non-negotiable reason that transcends all other reasons is to be part of a community of hope that is learning the language of Easter, that is learning the vocabulary of resurrection, and they're doing it together. They're sharing it together. There is no other community in our world that has sustained this mission, that has sustained this purpose. Kickstart and, and all of these online fundraisers, they're going to come and go. And all of these other organizations, they, they come and go. But the church when it is faithful, remains that steady community of hope, offering to the hopeless good news. Friends, Easter is designed to be spoken in and through community, right? I mean, that's what happens on the first Easter. It's not just one of the women. All of the women go to share the good news. So be part of the church because you want to learn the language of hope, because you want to learn how to speak Easter in your own life, and in the life of the world, be part of the church to be a community of conviction and compassion that speaks resurrection in the shadow of burning cathedrals and stone-sealed tombs. Be part of the church because you want to be part of a Jesus-led movement towards situations and people that seem hopeless. Friends, the authentic church, the true church, which is the manifestation of Christ's raised body on earth, we gather and worship, we pray, we share in fellowship and study and mission to learn the language of Easter. That's why we're here on the corner of 16th and Peachtree. And each and every one of us, each and every one of us is invited to be part of this moment, to be part of this movement. Each and every one of us has energy and intelligence, has imagination and has love.
to bring hope to the hopeless. Each and every one of us has a call. We all have a true vocation to speak Easter, to shout resurrection, to scream hope that resounds the words of the angels. He is not here. He has been raised. Hallelujah. Amen.